0: As we continue in our series on the church and church membership, I want to spend a little time this morning in a study that's going to be less textual than it is topical, but I want to talk about the two ideas of church perpetuity and church history. Perpetuity, like the word perpetual, is looking at the biblical promise that the Lord's churches will have a Perpetual existence. It's the promise we can see clearly in Scripture. Meanwhile, church history is examining what happens to the Lord's churches, starting in Scripture, but then extending through the past 2,000 years or so that have gone by since. So let's start with some passages of Scripture which contain the promise of church perpetuity. It's important that that's the building block of our discussion. So Matthew 16, starting at verse 13 through verse 18, is a text we've we've read before recently, but I want to look at it from this perspective. Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This text is the first reference in the word of God that contains the word church. And in this text, we find who the church is. Glorifies, we find how the church was founded, we find where the church is going. And since we've dealt with this passage in detail a couple of times already recently, this morning I want to just focus on the specific promise that Jesus will build his church. I'm going to spend some time in a moment telling you about the history of the Lord's churches, about Baptist churches throughout the centuries, but never lose sight of the fact that the most significant and important detail of this text is that it is all about Jesus, right? Jesus is the one speaking. He asks a question in verse 13 and in verse 15. Jesus is the object of his own question, right? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus's character is the focus of, Of the only good answer, Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus offers a blessing for those who proclaim that God-given testimony. He says, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, for it wasn't flesh and blood that made you understand this, it was my Father in heaven that gave you this understanding. And in this text, we also see Jesus is the one who is building and the one who possesses His church, I will build my church. All that to say, when we open this text, the very first one to begin explaining what and who and why the church is, you don't find a more Christ-centered passage than this. And I want you to remember this in a moment as we very briefly go through 2,000 years of history of the Lord's Churches. This text is here to tell you that that history is about Jesus. If you can look at church history and not see Jesus in the process, then something has gone horribly wrong. Now, as it relates to the idea of perpetuity, the promise that his church will have a perpetual existence, this very first reference to the word church contains that promise. There is, of course a play on words in verse 17. We know this. The the name for Peter is Petros, a little stone or pebble, and Jesus says he's going to build his church on the Petra, the rock, the, the solid foundation of himself. And so by the authority of Jesus himself, the church belongs to Jesus. The church is built by Jesus, and the church is built on the foundation of Jesus. And This ensures the perpetual existence of the church. He says here, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, right? The church will be victorious in the spiritual battle that the Lord Jesus has called us and commissions us as a church. The church will not be prevailed over. The church will prevail. Now understand what perpetuity means and what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that every individual church that is established will always continue itself, right? Individual churches might fall out of existence, but the Lord's not going to be left without a witness. The first church was the one that Jesus himself built, and it was in every way a a proper assembly. It was a collection of baptized believers who assembled together to worship their Savior and to obey his word. And that's an important fact of uh, church history to recognize, contrary to what so many people say, that the, you know, the day of Pentecost is when the church was born or when the church began. It already existed before that time. They, They assembled together. They followed the Lord Jesus' commands. Acts 1 describes them um, before Pentecost as 120 individuals gathered together in an upper room. They have, in essence, a a business meeting there. After the events events of Pentecost, Acts 2.41 says that many received the word and were baptized, and there were added to them 3,000 souls. That's That's not something new starting. You can't add to what doesn't already exist, right? So there is a church that exists and there's 3,000 added. And according to the promise of Jesus here, there will never be a time when his true assemblies, his true churches would go out of existence. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28 for a moment and look at what he tells his church before that day of Pentecost. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We call this the Great Commission. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things That I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, right? I'm with you always, Jesus promised, even to the end of the age. He had to be speaking to them as an assembly, as a church, because the individuals here, none of them have made it to the end of the age. Jesus gives them this promise as a church that has his authority to declare the gospel, his authority to baptize, his authority to teach the clear commands of scripture. That's the job of the Lord's churches. And it's our job to perpetually recognize this promise that there will never be a time when the earth is without the witness and authority of the Lord's churches. He's with his church always, even until the very end. So church... Perpetuity is the promise that the Lord's churches would always exist. Church history is looking at how that promise got fulfilled over time. These two ideas, they they naturally overlap one another. Let me give you an example. If those 120 saints who were assembled together in Acts chapter 1, if we want to call them the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, and understand I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, they they would not have called themselves the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. But let's say that that's the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, right? They didn't have a building, they didn't have stained glass windows, they met in the temple courtyard in that area called uh, Solomon's Portico. Does that church still exist? Well, No, you can't go to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem today, or actually there might be in Jerusalem a First Baptist Church, but it's not this one, right? In Acts chapter 8, it tells us the story of the persecution of that church, how Saul of Tarsus was used as a tool by the Jewish leaders to arrest and murder Christ's followers. That church scattered. Listen, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, says Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And at that time, great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So they scattered. Now, how does the promise that the Lord will always have his church get fulfilled if the church... Scattered. Well, they scattered, taking the gospel with them, running away to cities it described in Judea and Samaria. And soon there are assemblies of believers forming into churches in Judea and Samaria and in other places. Acts 9, verse 31 even tells us that as it speaks of the churches throughout Judea and Galatia and i'm sorry judea and galilee and samaria right in acts 13 there is a church in syria as far away as a city called antioch and it's there that that former saul of tarsus who becomes paul the apostle is sent out on missionary journeys where he preaches the gospel and he establishes more churches right he's using the authority that Jesus gave to his church to preach the gospel, the authority Jesus gave to his church to baptize, the authority that Jesus gave to his church to to teach them everything that Jesus taught. And Paul established churches throughout uh, Asia Minor. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. When Paul established the church at Ephesus, and he writes to them, look at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 at what Paul tells them. Verse 20. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Right? Don't we see the promise of perpetuity there? Right? Doesn't it tell us that the purpose of God is to have his power working in us so that he would be glorified in this church by Christ Jesus, Paul says, to all generations forever and ever. Incidentally, Note how this also tells us that the church is all about Jesus, right? Too many Baptists today speak about the Lord's churches as if they exist for the glory of themselves, right? They will read this as to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, right? The church is not the emphasis here. The emphasis is by Christ Jesus. It's the purpose of God to be glorified, in the church as it declares the gospel of Jesus Christ to all generations. Now, the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem doesn't still exist. What about the First Baptist Church of Ephesus? Well, perpetuity isn't the promise that every individual church would continue forever. It's the assurance that the Lord Jesus would always be represented on earth by his true churches. There will never be a time where the Lord's churches in total are prevailed against. They will bring unceasing glory to God in every generation. Now, that's just a few of the passages that we can see that promise of church perpetuity in. Before moving on, I want to note there are other passages where perpetuity is not specifically stated that's not necessarily the point of the passage but it is it is emphatically implied so let me let me give you an example it's one that you're familiar with when paul wrote to the church at corinth and he was talking to them about the lord's supper and how they how he instructed them to take it he says in 1 corinthians 11:26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, right? Church perpetuity is not the reason that Paul wrote that, but the clear implication is that the Lord's churches are going to be properly observing that Lord's supper as a testimony of the death of Jesus until the return of Jesus, Right? There will always be churches at every point in history faithfully observing the Lord's Supper for what Paul said there to be true. Okay, so church perpetuity is taught in Scripture. You might be asking, well, so what? You know, why is it important? Well, it's important because that informs us of how we go about looking at church history. So let me say this again. Church perpetuity is the promise in Scripture that the Lord's churches will always exist. He'll never be without a witness. There will always be assemblies or churches carrying out the commission of preaching the gospel, baptizing believers, discipling, teaching them under the authority of Jesus. Church perpetuity is that promise that the Lord's churches will always exist. Church history, on the other hand, is is looking at how that promise has been fulfilled over time. Too many times in modern Christianity, there is a temptation to skip over the truth of church perpetuity and go straight to the study of church history. In other words, we, we start by looking at history and ask the question, well, can we see what God has been doing, but ignore the promise that Jesus made of church perpetuity, which has said, this is what God will do. So trying to examine church history without basing it on the promise of Jesus that the church will perpetually exist leads to a couple of potential errors. And they are common errors on two extremes. The first error is to look at church history and accept the possibility that when you look at church history and you can't see clear examples of the Lord's church somewhere, that, well, maybe it went out of existence for a time. And that's actually the most common view of christian history among evangelical churches right they see that roman catholicism rose up around 300 years after the new testament closes and it became more and more corrupt over time and so the common view today is that the lord's churches basically went out of existence until the reformers came along in the 1500s and fixed everything Biblically, that is an unacceptable view of church history because it forgets that Jesus promised that there is a perpetual existence of his churches. Individually, churches might go out of existence, but the New Testament is clear that somewhere, somehow, there is always a church of the Lord Jesus on earth. And if it was not in Roman Catholicism, Right? They weren't carrying out the commands of preaching the gospel under his authority and baptizing scripturally or teaching all the things that he commanded. So if it wasn't Roman Catholicism, it was somewhere. It has to exist somewhere. It's just biblically unthinkable that the Lord was without a church until the reformers came along and, and fixed the problems that they saw. That's the error on one side. The second error of skipping the truth of church perpetuity and going straight to church history is found on the other extreme of things. I have been in Baptist churches where they have a framed document on the wall that explains their own personal church history. Right, This church was started by that church, which was started by that church, which was started on this missionary journey. And they traced themselves all the way back to Paul's missionary journeys and the church at Antioch, which was started by the church at Jerusalem, which was started by Jesus. Those kind of documents are really neat, fascinating reads. And in many cases, they're absolutely accurate. But the error comes in in thinking that such a document is necessary in order to confirm that their church is in that line of churches Jesus promised would always exist. That error is skipping the promise that Jesus made about church perpetuity and putting their trust in what they can identify in church history. We really need to ask ourselves, what is it that we trust more? Do we trust what Jesus promised or do we trust what we can prove? Now, obviously, given that this is my 16th message on church and church membership, I think the Bible teaches us about the Lord's church and it is very important. But my trust is in what Jesus promised, not what I can put on paper. Right. Can, can church history be as simple as this? Right. Jesus promised that he would build his church and that it would always exist. And we look at the New Testament and we see what those churches look like, what they believe and how they behave. And then we can look around us and we can find a church that believes and behaves the way that the churches of the New Testament did. And just trust God's sovereign promise of that that there would always be an existence of his church, right? That's evidence enough that that is one of his true churches. Now, I know that tries to take a complicated subject of church history and really simplify it, but I don't think it needs to be more complicated than that. Jesus made a promise. I trust the promise. I don't have to see a framed document on the wall Proving a chain link succession all the way back to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. It's, listen, it's been illustrated like this before. Imagine that you are sitting at some vantage point where you can see cars driving down the interstate, entering a tunnel, and coming out the other side. Right? If you see my wife's gold 2013 Dodge van with a WCIC sticker in the window, go into the tunnel, and then a little while later you see a 2013 gold Dodge van with a WCIC sticker in the window coming out of the tunnel, you don't have to convince me that it was the same van all the way through in the middle, right? The evidence that I see on both ends is enough. The same thing's true with the Lord's churches. We see the church that Jesus built. We see in Scripture what it believed, and how it behaved. And when we see churches today that believe and behave the way New Testament churches did, you don't have to convince me of every link in between to know that that's one of the Lord's churches. Otherwise, if we think we have to have that proof, we're putting our confidence in the wrong place. And historical evidence like that is always going to be subject to criticism and complaint, right? I, I promise you, any church that has a document on the wall, I can find you somebody who thinks that they can break that chain because, you know, that the church on that list, there is some church there that sang the wrong kind of song once. Like, right? can you believe that they were singing contemporary Christian music in that church 200 years ago? Think about that one for a second. It's gonna hit you. You know there's a church on that list that is seven years off in where when they think the Lord Jesus is going to return. There's a church on that list that treated my daddy wrong. Listen, somebody won't like your list. Let's just be honest enough to to admit that every sovereign grace Landmark Baptist church that I know of, will look at the Corinthians in the New Testament and say, clearly, that is the Lord's church. But if that church existed down the road from them, they would have nothing to do with it. I'm about to give you a very, very brief overview of what I see in church history. But don't let Baptist history convince you that every church was perfect or that it even had to be perfect Church history is a good study to see how Jesus has fulfilled his promise. But trust the promise, not what you can put on paper. So as as the gospel spread through the authority of the Lord's churches, Paul is the apostle in scripture that we read about going out on missionary journeys. But Paul was not the only one who was doing those missionary journeys. Um, History suggests that Matthew made it as far as Ethiopia before being martyred. Bartholomew preached in Asia as far as Armenia. Andrew was martyred in modern-day Greece where he was actually, history tells us, crucified and preached from his cross for two days while dying. Thomas made it as far as India before he was run through with a spear. And Romans 15.24 even tells us that the Apostle Paul went on more missionary journeys than we read about in Scripture. He wrote to the Romans and told them in Romans 15.24 of his intention to go see them as he went all the way to Spain. And actually in his lifetime, there is good evidence That the gospel through Paul's ministry, not Paul personally, but through his ministry, those, those that he preached to made it all the way to the British Isles. But unfortunately, as history progressed, issues of faith and practice sort of began to diverge among different churches. If those were small issues, then churches wouldn't like separate from fellowship with one another. But... As you would expect, sometimes the issues were not small issues. So even as Roman Catholicism, or what early on would develop into Roman Catholicism, it started bringing in ideas like infant baptism, baptism by sprinkling, worshiping Mary, praying to saints, uh, the infallible authority of the Pope, all those kind of things developed over time. All along that process, there were churches which rejected such unbiblical practices and remained true to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. In the second and third centuries, by the way, the second and third centuries would be the 100s and 200s. I always have a problem with that. In the second and third centuries, they were known as Montanists and Novatians, right? Roman emperors insisted that People worship them, make sacrifices to the emperor, and the montanist innovations encourage believers. Look, even if you're threatened with horrible persecution or horrible execution, you need to face that bravely and not deny the Lord Jesus. By the 4th century, the 300s, the sort of, that's sort of where the unofficial start of Roman Catholicism took place. The Lord's true churches were known in places as Donatists, after a pastor named Donatus in North Africa, who most vocally opposed the compromises that were developing among Catholicism. For the next several centuries, we see the Lord's churches in, in names like the Paulicians in Armenia, or the Paterines and Cathari of North Italy and Southern France. There were the in Switzerland, they were known as the Arnoldists. In uh, France, they were known as Petrobrusians or Henricians. The Bogomils were in Bulgaria. By, by the 1100s, by the 1100s, we can see the history of the Lord's churches most visibly in a couple of groups called the Waldenses or Albigensians, right? They lived in the Alps and Pyrenees Mountains, and it really kind of depended what side of the mountain they lived on, which title they got, but they're essentially the same group. I love that there is a record of a Roman Catholic bishop attending a trial of some Waldenses in Rome, and he mocks them, saying that they have translated the Bible into their common language and, quote, everything preached that is not proved by the text of the Bible, they hold to be a fable. Well, <laughs> praise God, my people, right? Yet more importantly, we have Waldensi and Albigenzi's in their own words. There is a Waldensi statement of faith that dates to the year 1120. And from 1120, we have this statement of faith with which with just very, very minor things, I would wholeheartedly adopt adopt myself. It essentially says there is one God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. The scriptures are to be held as the sole standard of faith and practice. Jesus alone, not dead saints or Mary, is the only mediator between God and man. They reject the Catholic mass, holy water, all non-biblical inventions of tradition. They say baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only church ordinances. And they say, and, and this is a quote, I love this quote, that Christ is our life and truth and peace and righteousness, our shepherd and advocate, our sacrificed and priest, who died for our salvation so, so that all who believe I'm sorry, who died for the salvation of all who should believe and rose again for their justification. (laughs) That's a wonderful statement. As we turn to the 13th century, Pope Innocent III opted for a military crusade into southern France in order to put those people to death. He recruited men to join an army for the Pope by telling them by joining the army and doing the Pope's bidding, they could earn themselves a place in heaven, no matter what kind of crimes they committed in the past. So you can imagine the kind of men that get recruited into that army. And at one point, the Crusaders descended on this French city called Beziers, And when one of the Crusaders asked this captain, look, when we go in there, there's, there's Catholics and there's Albigenses. How do we tell the difference? His captain said, God knows his own, kill them all. And that's what they did. Entire cities were slaughtered. By the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, as Catholic priests like Martin Luther started to see the abuses of Roman Catholicism and turn away from those, draw away from them, there's a lot to appreciate about the Faithful stance those men took on some important truths. It was courageous. But y'all, had they started with embracing the truth of church perpetuity, they started by embracing the promise of Jesus, they would not have wasted time trying to fix what was not the church of Jesus. They would have just gone and joined what was the church of Jesus. Instead, they built their own church which by definition can't be the church that Jesus built. And they most often joined in with Catholicism in their hatred of the Anabaptist, which is what the Lord's churches were known as in that day. Anabaptist means re-baptizers. So if you went to one of the Lord's churches and you heard the gospel and you believed in Jesus they would say it's time to baptize you because what happened to you as a child is you just getting wet that was not baptism. But for all their hatred towards Anabaptists, historically both Catholics and the reformers recognized that Anabaptists were a Christian group that had been around since the beginning. In 1558, there is this Catholic cardinal named Stanislaus Hoisius, who was in the process of writing against the reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. Because that was his target, he was maybe a little bit unguarded about what he said about the Anabaptists. Because what he said essentially is if you think the reformers are the only groups opposing Roman Catholicism, you are wrong because the Anabaptists have been around for a really long time. And if you ask exactly how long, according to Hoysius, he dated it at 1,200 years in 1558, which makes it predate Catholicism. Church history is a fascinating study, but it only proves the faithfulness of Jesus when he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church or I will be with you always or when Paul said that God will receive glory in the church by Christ Jesus for all ages forever and ever. So as we wrap up, this lecture, I know, it's more of a lecture than a sermon, I recognize. Let's go back and think of where we started in Matthew 16, because leading up to that promise of perpetuity where Jesus said that he would build this church and that it would prevail. He did that right after asking those questions. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that's when he promised to build his church, when he got that verifiable statement about the declaration of who he is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. And this leads me to believe that the church is what it is because the church knows Jesus is who he is. And so who is he to you? Do you know that Jesus is the son of the living God, the promised Messiah? Do you know him to be your savior? Do you really trust what he says when he makes a promise do you embrace that promise because let me tell you how the disciples would have heard that promise when he made it when he promised to build his church and that the church would prevail it would always exist they would have heard that as a wonderful promise to them going forward Listen, I urge anybody who is interested in church history, go ahead and study it. But remember, that is looking backward. Don't get so fascinated with looking backward that you forget that the promise of Jesus is that his church would move forward. Perpetuity teaches us the Lord's church is the institution designed to bring glory to God through Christ in every generation Without exception. And so what is it that our generation is doing? And by the way, I don't care how old or young you are sitting here this morning. This is your generation. Y'all, our generation of the Lord's church cannot hold fast to the promise of Jesus just by looking back on what past generations have done. I like the historical evidence of seeing believers being faithful and proclaiming and obeying his word. But y'all, we need to be believers who are faithful in proclaiming and obeying his word. We have this promise as much as those that were sitting with him that day have this promise. We will... He will always be with us. We can bring glory to God by declaring the Lord Jesus in every generation. We can, through the act of the Lord's Supper, declare his death until he comes. We don't need to trust what we can put on paper. We need to trust our Savior's promise and obey our Savior's calling.